The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to The How of Business with Henry Lopez and David Begin, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is Steve Sims. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited, very excited to have Steve with us today. Uh, Steve is an entrepreneur, a speaker, a consultant, a podcaster, and an author. His new book, which I just finished reading, great book, it's called Blue Fishing, The Art of Making Things Happen. And we're going to chat about a lot of the great takeaways in that book. I think as a small business owner, it's a must read. Uh, as far as Steve goes, a little bit more about his background, as he explains it, quote, I was a tenement kid, a bricklayer's son, born to build walls. And now I knock them down. If I can do it, anyone can you can, end quote. I love that quote because I think it says it all in one sentence. Um, Steve is the founder of the internationally renowned company Bluefish, and he's best known for making once-in-a-lifetime events happen for the rich and famous. With his signature playbook and approach, uh, Steve has been able to make his clients' wildest dreams come true, from a wedding at the Vatican to being serenaded by Andrea Bocelli to powerful business introductions to moguls like Elon Musk's, and many others. Uh, Steve currently lives in the LA area, LA, California, that is, with his family. And so in this episode, Steve's going to share some stories and insights from his incredible journey to where he is today. It's a tremendous story of how he got to where he is and where he came from. Very inspirational. And then we're going to dive into some insights from the book on making things happen. And, And a lot of these things, as I said at the outset, really translate, have translated for me in thinking about how I can improve and grow my small business. So with all that, Steve Sims, once again, welcome to the show. Thank you, pal. Great to have you. So let's start at the beginning, if we could, Steve. You were, you grew up in East London, obviously, son, uh, or not obviously, according to the research I did, uh, son of a brick mason. That was kind of the the destiny or life that was laid out for you, no pun intended, wasn't it? Uh, absolutely. I came from an Irish construction firm. Uh, my cousins, my uncles, my mum, uh, we all used to work on the building site. It was just it was just one of those things. And it was that era that you did what your dad did. And you didn't kind of you know think outside of that box. It was just yeah. assumed that's what you were going to do. Right. And so tell me about I, I read where you had that epiphany moment, you were up somewhere looking down at several generations of your family and <laughs> something hit you that said, I have to make a change? Yeah, uh, as an entrepreneur, I knew more of what I didn't want to do. And of course, I didn't know I was an entrepreneur then. You know, you don't wake up one morning and go, hey, I'm an entrepreneur. Um, But something eats around inside of you and controls things that you decide on. And I was working on the construction firm and I knew more that I didn't want to do things than what I wanted to do. And I remember you know, in my late teens, going up on this uh, on this platform, on this what they call scaffolding, and all the bricklayers are down the line loading bricks, and it was my family tree. <laughs> I had my dad, I had my uh, uncle, I had my cousins, and right at the end, I had my 80-year-old granddad doing it, puffing a cigarette, laying the bricks. My entire timeline was on that scaffolding, and I went down uh, for breakfast. It was like about 10.30 in the morning. We had a breakfast break. And I said to my granddad, I said, you know, I don't think I want to do it this uh, you know, for the rest of my life. You know, everyone's here. And he said, you've got to quit today. He said, because tomorrow you'll be 80 years old and you'll be up there. Interesting. And I just so, thought, all right. And that was important from him, right? Because he could have just as easily said, well, this is your life. This is what you're going to do. And your dad expects you to take over the business. And it is what it is. Yeah, exactly. And it did, uh, it did cause some friction within the family. Obviously, when you're a teenager, you're living at home. So... Yeah, it caused friction. 
And so then what did you do at that point? Did you leave right away or did it take some time before you headed out and found something else? Tell me about that. I realized very early on that you can't half jump in the water. So um, I, I quit. Um, and of course, you know, had the uh, consequent uh, subsequent arguments and tension and cold shoulder at the meals. And, and then the following day, just went out to try and see what I, what I would want to do. And I started doing things like driving trucks and making phone calls for an insurance company. And then I ended up working on another building site because, you know, you need cash. Right. Um, and I just tried... I just tried loads of different things. I don't know how many jobs I went through, but the thing is, I never recognized them. I never, I never did something and go, oh, I hate this, and oh, this. I just went, I don't like this. I'm not doing it anymore. So I was very complacent and very ignorant at that time uh, about, I suppose, responsibility and loyalty to the job. I just knew, hey, I don't like doing this, so this isn't for me. You need to find someone else who it is for. I'm out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just literally bounced off of so many different things until that fateful day I, I met my fella, my friend on uh, on the train going into London. And and that's the guy who got you into trying the stock brokerage gig? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, if you want to go the polar opposite to being a bricklayer in East London, <laughs> right. try being a stockbroker. Right. But it got, it got even worse. And uh, this is where all credibility goes. Um, he... He was a lad that I knew from school, and I was actually going on my way to a building site, and he was telling me that this was in the 80s when it was you know the, the bull market and that, and all the British stockbrokers were moving out to Hong Kong where they had something called the tiger market. And so all these stockbrokers were moving out, which meant there was a lot of space for interns mm-hmm. in London. So he invited me to come in and apply for an internship. So I went along to the bank, and in one of the rooms was all of the stockbrokers that were being um, uh, transferred over to Hong Kong. <laughs> and they had this most amazing breakfast buffet <laughs> at the corner of this huge conference room. So I was in the wrong room, but I saw this breakfast and it was like a cat seeing a mouse. I thought to myself, I- I- I'm in this room for a reason. And I think the reason's to eat. So <laughs> I started eating this breakfast thinking any minute now someone's going to tug me on the elbow and ask me to leave. But they carried on. Other people were coming up, getting breakfast, talking to me. And then the guy on stage turned around and said, please go to the girls at the back and make sure they've got your name and address to send you the package. So I thought, (laughs) I've got nothing to lose. So I walked up to this girl and I went, Steve Sims. And she went, oh, I don't have you down. So I was like, oh, okay. She's like, oh, no, no. So she wrote my details down and couple of weeks later, I get the package for my transfer oh my. to Hong Kong, <laughs> including a ticket. And and that was it. That's, so that's I, I flew to Hong Kong to, to try and be a stockbroker. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, it so is. much it different is. breakfast than the one you were having with your grandfather back when. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it was. Go ahead. But to complete, to, to complete that, I landed on the Saturday, parted with him on the Saturday and the Sunday, went to orientation on the Monday, and I was fired on the Tuesday. <laughs> so it wasn't exactly a long industry right. or a long time I had in stockbroking. But it got you to Hong Kong, and we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. because I want to go back to a couple of points. One is this point about you jumping around from thing to thing. It seems to me like that you, you got to look at back at that now as a positive. In other words, once you cross that initial hurdle of I'm going to quit this job and and possibly taking over my dad's business. That was a huge one. But after that, it was easier for you to decide if this is not for me, I'm making a change. Most people just, you know, toil away and hate their jobs, but never do anything about it. Uh, yeah, I, that's, I, I have fear and everyone has fear and we're, 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 we're mankind. We're built with fear, but my fear was always standing still. Mm. My fear was missing out on the opportunity. There's this thing that everyone talks about now, FOMO, the, the fear of missing out. Okay. Mm-hmm. I had masses and, and still do. I have masses amounts of FOMO in me. Now, if I, I have a very good life now, I'm blessed. I, I'm, I'm the tip of the iceberg now. I've gone through, through hopefully most of my crap, and now I have a very good life. But if I'm in exactly the same position today, that I am next year, then I'm going to be devastated with myself because I'm all about growth. 
I'm all about growing. I'm all about expanding, trying new experiences. And even then as a kid, I knew full well that if I didn't take a shot at that, the idea of me not taking a shot would be worse than whatever was going to be the outcome of me trying. And is the is some of the origin of that what I've heard you talk about that you at one point it's you know understandably had a sense of bitterness about your financial situation and and home life right as as kids obviously sometimes do I'm, I'm guilty of that as well is that do you think that's part of the feel of that that you just you wanted something different from very early on Yeah yeah I know what you're talking about um, I being from a construction family we didn't have a lot of money. And I think the, the accurate category for us would have been poor, um, scraping by. We never had takeout. That was ridiculous. That's what you, you saw on Hollywood movies. Um, we didn't have any of those kind of things. And I remember going through my teens and my early 20s, not, not horribly, but recognizing the fact that I came from a poor family. And it wasn't until my late 20s that I woke up to realize that Getting up at six o'clock in the morning and going to bed when the job's done and being able to uh, walk in to the supermarket and walking back to save gas, all, <coughs> all of these kind of things, I suddenly realized that I never wanted for a shirt on my back. I was always hugged. I was always loved. I was always protected. I was always fed. I suddenly realized just how wealthy I was mm. as a child. And when things didn't go well for me, I would go, well, hang on a minute. I've got up at four o'clock in the morning to go to work. This is nothing. I was so well prepared for hard work. Mm. I didn't realize just how educated and fortunate and wealthy I actually was as a child. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, those are things we realize later, but you know, you tell in the book uh, some very interesting stories about the perspectives from your parents, your mom in particular on how she looked at things that were beyond their means. And it's that, that um, scarcity mentality, I think, versus I will someday have that. I, I grew up the same way. I, I grew up very working class, but the thing that was different about me for some reason, there was always something in me that when I looked at a luxury item, let's say greedily, <sighs> It was never, I'll never have that. That's for other people. It was always, someday I will get that. And, and so that seemed to be in you as well from an early age, which is very interesting to me. Where, was it modeled for you? Where do you think that came from? That, that determination to say, I'm going to get more than this. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> Look, I would love to, to accept this kind of, oh, yes, I planned it and analyzed it. It worked out uh, an accurate formula. I just knew what I didn't like. Yeah. And so I kept on going forward. And, and, and an Irish kid, and I still say to myself now, you know, I'm 51 years old and I still think I'm a four-year-old. Mm. Um, because the Irish four-year-old, we ask why for everything. You know, I want this. You can't have it. Why? Why? <laughs> what? We're that annoying little, little kid. Um, and I still ask that now. And I, 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 believe, I believe quite accurately that if you get a no – there's only two reasons you get a no. You ask the wrong question or the wrong person. Mm. And as a kid, and as an Irish kid from London, we learn the gift of the gab. We learn mm. how to talk to people. You know, the Barrow Boys from East London, some of the best negotiators in the planet. Um, and these were in my neighborhood. So as I grew up, it wasn't so much of a case of, I could have that, I'm going to get that in life. It was a case of, why can't I have that? Mm, why can't that be with me? And so it was the why that drove me rather than the, yes, the arrogance of, I'm going to get that car. I'm going to get that yacht. It was the case of, well, why can't I have that car and yacht? Yeah. And then you touched on something that was interesting to me as well. I'm always interested in how that, that instinct or if it's modeled for you of knowing how to connect with people. And it seems like that those those were influences that you observed early on and developed that, right? That's one of the things you do so well now and are helping others do with the book is how do you genuinely and authentically connect with people? Hey, I'm gonna that was something that was something that seemed like that was part of growing up for you to an extent from what I'm hearing. Well it, it was more it wasn't so much the authenticity of which is a word that I absolutely despise. Um it's like taking credit for breathing. Um it should just be something that's taken for granted. 
I wanted to be very transparent. Right. And for me, transparency was key. If you're in a bar and someone's talking to you, and, you know, the British can be a little bit cheeky and sarcastic, <laughs> you need to know whether or not this is actually a threat or if it's the guy's humor. I see. And if you're talking to someone, I want you to know what I'm after and why I'm in front of you. I want it to be very transparent. I'm a great believer that my stomach is smarter than my head. And when we're in front of someone that doesn't quite feel right in our stomach, what do we do? We walk away. And nine times out of 10, those butterflies are because we're getting signals from that person that we can't, can't compartmentalize appropriately. We don't know where this is going. We're a little bit suspicious. But you know there's no suspicious when there's transparency. So if I'm in front of you and I'm like, hey, how are you doing? I want to talk to you about X because this is what I want to happen. But hey, I've heard you're trying to do this. And I think I have a route that can benefit you. Can we continue with this conversation? Mm -hmm. I've made it very transparent, very quickly, that I want something from you. And I've done my research that you need something. And I've got it. So I'm very transparent. I'm impossible to misunderstand. And I think I'm those things over authenticity. Yeah. Okay, so let's move forward to where we were. You're in Hong Kong now. You lose that uh, brokerage job. And if I got <laughs> it right, you end up uh, taking a doorman position at a nightclub. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I started doing what I think God actually designed and built before. <laughs> um, being a big, ugly fella, working on the door in those days was so easy. Um, and that's what they asked me to do. So I needed the cash. Um, I started working on the door and very quickly I thought to myself, you know, guess what? I don't like being here. And so I don't know what I want to do, but I know I don't want to be here. That's when, and again, you've already realized by now I'm a very primitive thinker. <laughs> um, and I thought to myself, okay, I need to know rich, successful people. And why? This is very easy. Poor, unsuccessful people don't employ inspire or engage you but rich successful people can inspire engage or employ me so if my circle's full of rich people the odds are I'm better off than if it's a full of bunch of full of poor people mm -hmm. so i started recognizing the people that would come to the clubs and i would and this was a bit you know silly at the time i would turn them away so i would have a guy come up to the door and i'd say Evening, gents. How you doing? Uh, not tonight. And they'd look at me like I'm either looking for a fight or they've done something right. wrong. And I'd be like, your regulars here. We respect your, your patronage. But I'm telling you, it isn't the night that you're going to be grateful of. Now, there's a club down the road. Go over there. Tell Bobby Sim sent you. That's where it's happening tonight. I hope to see you back here Thursday. Should be a good evening for you. And I would send them away. And people would be like, and then I would get people come past me going, Oh, it's tonight the night. I'd be like, it is. But, you know, you really got to get a booth. And I would, I would look for the upsell. I would look for creating the relationship. I would then start finding out where there's a boutique doing a cocktail reception, where there's a yacht party going on, where there's the unveiling of a new car. And I started to build up the, this circle. And people would ask me, what's going on? I'd be like, oh, there's this party going on on Friday. If you want, I could probably get you in there. But it's going to cost you a couple of grand. And... I would start, I would always monetize it, but my goal had been to build up this circle of affluent people that could spend mm -hmm. money. And again, the goal was to get enough people in my circle that someone would actually offer me a job. And <laughs> do you know the funny thing? It was the only time in my life where I never actually asked for anything. Interesting. Other than the money for the tickets. I never asked people for a job. I thought it would come. I really had to build it and you know, fill the dreams moment. Um, but it didn't work. And before I realized it, people were like, oh, I'm going to England, Steve. You know, can you handle it? Yeah, I'll handle it. I'll, let me sort that out for you. Now, of course, I moved off of the door and I started throwing my own parties in boutiques, penthouses, yachts. And before you knew it, I was like a party promoter. I was an event promoter. I was an access getter. You know, I was... That's where the concierge. So without realizing it, I'd actually built up my own industry. 
The thing that that is so interesting to me in part on this, Steve, is that it seems like it came to you instinctively, or or maybe not, this idea that it was about building these win-win situations for people and that you were building these relationships. How did that, was that just instinctive to you that, how did that click for you? Because I don't, I don't think that that's something that most of us, especially early in our lives without having been mentored or trained that that comes to, it seems like that was maybe instinctive in your character. Uh, yeah, I, I, again, it's back to the, you know, back from the education on the streets. Um, now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not Oliver, you know, I'm not running around up and down chimneys, but when you talk to someone, you know, what's in it for them, you know, Londoners and, and, and any kind of street scenario, when you meet people, uh, especially in the streets, you want to know if they're friend or foe, what's in it, you know, why they're there. You know, you have to be all that kind right. of thing. Quickly assess somebody I, and what their motives are and what they're You do. Exactly, you do. So I carried that through to the fact that, and, and a lot of people have to, have to clock this. If you want to pin a little bit in this podcast, and I'm urging people to kind of listen up now. When you're going after affluent, connected, iconic status individuals, any of those people, when you come to them, because of where they are in the pecking order now, they are more cynical and skeptical of why you're in front of them. Sure. So when you go to anybody of that ilk, you've got to let them know in seconds what's in it for them. It's easy to get your foot in the door now, but what you've got to be is so irresistible that they don't want you to leave. So it made sense for me that if I'm talking to someone, I'm going to give you the win first so that you know why I'm in front of you. So it, it just made sense to me that for me to be able to continue a conversation with you, there had to be some reason for it. And you had to be the one driving that reason. Right, right. All right. So then it's around that time that you end up having a conversation with your wife, I believe. And you said, hey, we've got a business here in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Again, you're making me sound smarter than I am. Um, <laughs> no, my wife, I actually um, – if anyone's ever seen me or anyone looks up me after this, you know, I'm a, I'm a guy that in East London, black t-shirt and jeans riding around on motorcycles. Um, I now at the age of 51 living in Los Angeles, I don't own a car. I still ride around on motorcycles, black t-shirt and jeans. But during that middle segment, I had a car and I used to wear suits. And do you know what I used to do? I used to throw my own events, but I used to put a sharp suit on and go to other people's events, take out all of my earrings, go to another person's event to try and get a job. And of course, I never got one. Hmm. And it was my wife that came to me when I was actually quite down, sitting in the, in the back of the, of the apartment. And she said to me, she said, you go out three or four times a week to network at events, and this is going to surprise anyone out there, I'm terrible at networking events. I am god awful if there's a picture of the worst networker in the world it's me for one i'm big and ugly that doesn't exactly attract people to come and want to chat with me i'm useless at small talk someone go hi how are you and i'll go do you really want to know and they'll go oh uh, and all that say or that say something like hey we should get together for a beer why and so i'm not good at that kind of little fluffy bit but I would go to all of these events, have terrible times. And my wife said to me that you're trying to pursue a job and a career. And I said, yes. And she said, this is our bank account. This is our apartment. We've never missed a rent payment in like three years. You've got something here, yet you're going into the other field because that one looks green. Hmm. And it was my wife that actually laid it in front of me, literally in paperwork. Uh, she'd print it off and she, and she went, you got to give it a go or not. And that's when it was a case of, okay, let's try. And of course, I did what every entrepreneur does when they try to monetize what they're already doing. Yeah, screw it up. Um, <laughs> and so I went through, thankfully, a short period of just messing up what I already had. And the name Bluefish, uh, if I got <laughs> it right, comes in part from the password technique that you use when you were first, when you were first the doorman. Uh, yep. But, but it, and that's the origin of it, right? And then a kind of a doctor's influence there. 
Yeah, exactly. I used to have a little bit of a giggle. I used to give these affluent people passwords, and there'd be four or five passwords that I'd use. One of the regular ones was finish this sentence, one fish, two fish, red fish. So I'd, I'd invite someone, and they'd turn up at the door, whisper in my ear, blue fish, and I'd be like, go on it. <laughs> and it was, it was tongue-in-cheek, but it was a great filter for people that had humidity, uh, had uh, confidence, mm-hmm. and were just up for a giggle. Because you would get these idiots walk up to the door, and they'd be like, I'm here for the party. And we'd be like, there's no party here, mate. And if they didn't say the, par- if they didn't say the password, they wouldn't get in. And you're right. People started going around Hong Kong and saying, oh, yeah, that Bluefish company. And, of course, we weren't Bluefish. Uh, in fact, when we, when we launched the company, we actually launched it under a different name because mm. it sounded more opulent and precocious. Mm-hmm. And, of course, no one wanted it. And that was my first introduction to being you and branding you is your way of being unique. And it's a very easy way of being unique. So with so many people going, oh, you that Bluefish company? In the end, we went, yep, that's us. And I remember one of the girls saying to me, you know, looking at me as I actually knew what I was doing. And she said to me, oh, Steve, you know, what is Bluefish? And what does it mean? And I said to her, it means nothing. (laughs) So we can give it our own meaning. Isn't that exciting? And this was back in the 80s and the 90s when there was no Google. So for many, many years, the only blue fish we ever, ever knew was Dr. Zeus. I didn't even know there was actually a blue fish. <laughs> That's fantastic. This is Henry Lopez, co-host of the How of Business podcast. And I invite you to schedule a free business coaching consultation with me. I welcome the opportunity to chat with you about your business goals and offer the guidance and accountability that we all need to achieve success. As an experienced small business owner, I understand the challenges you are experiencing, and often it's about helping you ask the right questions to help you make progress towards achieving your goals. I can help you get there. To find out more about my business coaching services and to schedule your free coaching session, please visit thehowofbusiness.com. All right, I'm fascinated by the whole topic here that we've been touching on related to transparency and being the real you. And essentially, when I, when I first was doing the research on you and I saw your picture, I was like, whoa, this is a scary guy. And it, <laughs> and it took me a moment to reconcile that because immediately I think, well, how does he – how is he delivering these services to the high net worth individuals? And and again, I, I fell into the trap of thinking, well, this guy should be in a suit and look professional, quote unquote. Yeah. But now I get it. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I, I get it now. Um, and it's interesting going back to the point of when you go to a networking event or a party. So who are you looking to connect with? And and it, it seems like it's for you. It's a it's more of a screening or a filter of the people who can't get past that initial impression of you, or perhaps you're, you might come across as a little uh, abrasive. That's not something maybe somebody you really want to talk to. Is that part of it? And then the people who you end up conversing with are the people that you do want to connect with? Yeah. Um, actually, I was with a client the other day, and uh, uh, it's funny because she, uh, she still does this. We were at this party. And I didn't want to be at the party. I don't go to a lot of parties. While my life looks as though I'm around all the big award shows and stuff like that, nine times out of ten, if I'm there, I've just popped in for like 20 minutes and I'm gone again. It's Mm. not what I actually like to do. I see. So, But a friend of mine had bought this new house. He invited me to uh, to his housewarming. I didn't know how big it was going to be. It was bloody big. Um, The house, yes, but the party bigger. Um, and there were a lot of people, so I wanted to get out. And I was with a couple of um, very well-known faces uh, in the um, uh, influencer world. And this girl was talking to them, and she went, oh, and, and, and you are? And these two were my clients, and they were very affluent, and they went to introduce me, and I just went, oh, I just owned a coffee shop. <laughs> and she looked at me and I said, yeah, and these, these two come in and get my coffee. I do great cappuccinos. Don't I do good cappuccinos? And I went off on this stint of these cappuccinos and how I make great coffee. And these two were just, you know, they were having a giggle and they walked off. But you know, the funny thing was that this girl was actually really nice. 
And she wanted to know why I love cappuccino so much. Mm. And we ended up with this conversation. Now, you can blag for like 30 seconds, maybe even a minute if you're really good. But I started to feel really guilty that this woman was really interested in the family history of my coffee store. <laughs> um, and so I had to kill the conversation and leave. Now, there'd been a, a picture of me with these other two. And of course, usual social media. I had got tagged in it. She had seen it. She saw who I was. And she contacted me. Oh, goodness. And I thought, she's going to chew me out because she was a really nice girl. And you're right. If you can get past the filter of what I look like, um, how I talk with you, my interaction, maybe my sarcasm, my, maybe my little jokes, okay? If you can get past all of that, then let's be honest, I can communicate with you. I can resonate with you. We're on the same platform. Therefore, we can have a great relationship. And trust me, I've been like that with the Pope, Elon Musk, Richard Branson, the Elton John Foundation. I'm me in every single one of those circles and sandpits that I get to play in. And this lady actually became a client of mine, but she still today, <laughs> and I think she does this just to make me feel bad, of course. introduces me as the greatest cappuccino maker in LA. I love that. And so she's a, she's a, she's a great lass. Yeah. So, so many takeaways there, Steve, as it relates to a small business owner, because the one of the big things, as you know, that we struggle with as small business owners is developing that brand and who we are and who are we trying to attract, whether we're a solopreneur or a uh, an information service provider or a small business. And so that's why it's so interesting to me, this topic. What, what you figured out is that, first of all, you, you figured out a long time ago that you want to work with people that you like and that you can enjoy having a beer with, as you talk, I think it's the chug test, I think you call it. And so <laughs> yep. you figured that out a long time ago. And so you are purposely not trying to attract someone who is not who you want to work with. So you're not, you're purposely in part, not putting out in some kind of facade that's not really you. And I think the big takeaway there from a small business perspective is sometimes we try to create this brand that's not congruent, first of all, with who we really are, or what, we, or what we really offer. And so that transparency applies to the way you carry yourself and the way that we then in turn create the brand of our business. Does that make sense? It, it makes total sense. And I want to talk to the small business people because I'm a small business. I'm a cottage business. I am a small business owner. And I've learned everything because I failed, fell over, got smacked in the head, and it refined me rather than defined me. And I'm going to go and tell you a story now if I have your permission. Absolutely. Right. So halfway through me now swanning around the planet with these people, I was focusing so much on my business and what I did. I wasn't focusing on my branding. And the second I did that, I screwed it up. Hmm. I told you that I bought suits and I bought a car. I don't, and I know people are going, well, everyone buys a car. I don't <laughs> drive cars. Right. So for me, this was a big thing. I bought a car. And my wife actually took a photograph when I was at a party with Ferrari down in Monaco. Yep, sounds all flash, but stick with me for a second. <laughs> and I had gone along to this event in a car, got a photograph taken. I was leaning against a car that I had at the time. And about three months later, I got my photographs. It was one of the, it was the time when you kind of put your roll in an envelope, sent it off, and within the year you got your pictures back. Um, and my wife showed me the pictures. And there was a picture of me in this suit leaning against the car, and I fell apart. Mm. I actually fell apart. And I'm, I'm being serious. I went into like a three-day drinking binge mm. because I realized I wasn't in that picture. This facade was, this front. And then I suddenly realized that the people I was talking with, I didn't actually like them. Because the more successful Bluefish became, the more I tried to be someone who I thought you wanted to perceive me to be. You start playing that game, you're losing straight off the bat. Yeah. And so I tried to be someone that would impress you rather than doing things that would impress you. And I ended up with a client bank of people I didn't like. 
And so I literally decided, because I was in that amount of mental pain and a stonking three-day hangover, I actually decided that I needed to bring me back. So put the car up for sale, put the suits in the back of the wardrobe, went back to the jeans and T-shirt. And do you know what happened? I lost a ton of clients. They didn't want to deal with me in a black T-shirt and jeans. They thought it was disrespectful. I wasn't calling them sir. I wasn't calling them madam. I wasn't pandering to them. I wasn't treating them with precociousness. I wasn't blowing smoke up their backside and laughing at their terrible jokes. So I started losing them as clients. And all the ones that I wasn't resonating with as tight as I used to, they were back in my circle. Hmm. And you know, here's the thing, and I'm talking to all small business owners now. You have a fuel tank of energy. If you're using any part of that to present a facade, a front, then that leaves less gas in there for you to pay attention to what you're actually doing. If you are you, there is zero effort and 100% you can utilize towards your project, your family, your relationships, your growth, your marketing, anything else. Stop using any percentage of your gas on trying to be someone that you're not. And you know, you look at everyone and these people go, oh, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs. Yeah, these people are so unique. They're so inspirational. The amount of people that walk around Palo Alto now in either polo necks or hoodies trying (laughs) to be unique. Steve's already done that. Steve was unique because he was Steve. Elon's unique because he's Elon. You know, Albert Einstein was unique because he was Albert Einstein. Didn't care about his wild hair. Be you, zero effort required. Love that. Tremendously well said. Tremendous takeaways there for us as small business owners. And again, to you know, to finish up on that point of how I reconciled then how you look, it also eliminates somebody trying to figure out who you really are, right? Because when we do put on that facade, the suit, everything that we're supposed to look like, again, it's a veneer that then you're making it harder for that person that you really want to connect with to see who you really are. It's you're, you're asking them now to put forth the effort to get through that, right? Because we think it's the right image to put forth. And why do that? Why, why, ask the, why ask the person that you've just met to suddenly start going Sherlock because they've got to discover who you are? Because we're uncomfortable maybe with who we really are. And there you go. And why are we uncomfortable? Because from children, and we're getting deep now, from children we're taught to conform even down to the school uniform, even down to the fact that if you ask a question because you didn't understand what a teacher was saying, they will maybe answer it. But if you ask a second or third time, you're called an idiot. So you just go, oh, yeah, I get it now, when really you don't. We are grown, and the biggest fear we have, nine times out of 10 and 99% of the time with entrepreneurs, is humiliation. If we didn't recognize humiliation, if we didn't recognize... Uh, people laughing at us, just imagine what we could do. If we did not care about being laughed at, I believe we would do so much more. It's not the fear of going broke, because as entrepreneurs, we know what it's like to not be able to afford a meal. We know what it's like to run your credit card to pay your staff. We know what it's like to get the red letters. We know it. It's how we earn our stripes. It's how entrepreneurs live. It's how entrepreneurs grow. But that humiliation, that's scary. And people are fighting to being who they are in case they get laughed at. Agreed. That's that embarrassment, that fear of embarrassment. And that's why then we resist failure as, as well as what you just articulated, which is we are taught by our system, our education system, that failure is bad. So as entrepreneurs, we're, we're constantly overcoming that in, in my experience. Um, did, it, did it come to you early, though, as you've explained that you see how you see failure as far as in business goes? No, I, I, again, maturity and experience comes just after you needed it most. Um, <laughs> and it kind of grows with you. But as that, uh, you marry someone that's got FOMO, the fear of missing out, marry that to a big, thick-headed Irish bricklaying bulldog, <laughs> it's a recipe for disaster. Right. And I failed so many times. And then every time I failed, I went, oh, hang on a minute. 
So if I hadn't have done that, I could have done it. Oh, I'm going to do it. And then I would achieve it. And do you know the beautiful thing about failure is it's education. Now, you're willing to pay for university or college to teach you. Just understand that when you lose money because you didn't write that contract better, guess what you won't do the next time? You won't make those mistakes again. You've just paid for your education. And I, I understood very early on that every time I failed, I got better. And I remember as I've got older and, of course, the books come out and people say to me, you know, what would you – and I hope this isn't your question because I don't want to steal your, your oh, thunder no, on it. Please. But people say to me, what would you tell your 20-year-old self if you could go back or what, what, what horrible pains in your life would you remove? And do you know the funny thing is? None of them. Hmm. And if I met my 20-year-old, the only thing I would do is please ask him to stop drinking the cheap whiskey because <laughs> it's horrible. That's the only thing I would tell him. Because every time an entrepreneur falls down, they get up stronger. And I remember my dad, and this, this is funny that I'm talking about a big, thick-headed Irish Mick now. My dad once turned around to tell me, and there was no context in which he told me. He just told me this. But he turned around and he said to me, son, no one ever drowned by falling in the water. They drowned by staying mm. there. And, and then he walked off. And I remember as a little kid going, what, what the hell was <laughs> that? that <laughs> but, yeah, but it came back to me to suddenly realize that of course. every time I fell down or every time I got that smack in the head or every time I got that red letter or every time someone tried to sue me because I was working with someone that they didn't like, whatever, I became stronger. And I've always cherished that because if you don't fail, if you don't fall down and learn to get up, how do you know you're capable? Yeah, I love it. Great stuff. Um, I want to touch on passion because you talk a lot about that in the book and in other materials. And you talk about the need for passion to be combined with persistence and those things together. And of course, this topic of passion is what I talk a lot about on my show, because the thing I always try to reconcile is people will tell you, you know, do something you love, do something you're passionate about. But as you talk about in the book, it's that's fine, all good and well, but I got to make money at it if it's a business in particular. So I'd like to get just your brief thoughts on reconciling that and how you look at passion and how important that is for you. Um. Passion is one of those things that will keep you up all night and keep you rolling at 200 mile an hour without fear of falling down. Passion is just the most powerful fuel ever. And I can be talking to a client who's passionate about something, and I will openly say that's my drug mm -hmm. of choice. Now, when you're taking that passion about something, and, and, and anyone out there think this Sunday afternoon, you've got no kids, you've got no issues, you've got nothing to go on. Or maybe you have got kids, maybe that's the passion. But you've got nothing you're obligated to this Sunday afternoon. What do you want to do? And some people may go, I want to cook, I want to paint, I want to you know, landscape the garden, I want to you know, build a new motorcycle, I want to design a shirt. Is there anybody else there, out there, that would like what you can do. Because I believe we're all superhumans. I believe we've all got 5% that nobody else can do. And if you're really good at cooking, if you're really good at cupcakes, if you're really good at engineering, designing shirts, there may be a marketplace for you. And imagine if there's a marketplace out there for something that you enjoy doing, then that's where that passion comes. Passion usually leaves a business when you actually have to start doing stuff in the business, which you weren't prepared right. to do, you know, doing your accounting, doing your financing, maybe doing your marketing, you know, maybe doing your branding, all of these different things. Maybe you just want to make the shirt. Mm -hmm. But the good thing is you can get other people to do what you can't or don't want to do. And so I suggest, and that's the good thing about the internet now do something. If you want to do a T-shirt or you want to do a cupcake, do a couple, put it up on there and go, would anyone want one? You know, go down to your local school. Schools are great places and say, look, I want to donate 10 shirts to the school. You know, I want to donate, you know, 20 cupcakes. That's, that's actually getting feedback on whether or not it's any good. So there's many cheap ways now for you to actually get market research on whether or not there's a market in what you do well and what you enjoy. But if there's no passion in it, then it's an income. 
I love that. And that is sadly not something that you can live with for long without it upsetting you. Yeah. It also ties back to, as you alluded to, Steve, to the, the point we we're talking about earlier about transparency and being someone that you're not, that eventually will drain as it did for you, drain your passion very quickly about the business that you're building. Yeah. The other, the other terrible thing about business, and I consult on this now, and it, it happens to me, the more successful you are in business, nine times out of 10, the further you are pulled away from doing what it was that you actually started yeah. with. So you find people that are great at doing the T-shirts, and then two years later, they don't even know what material the shirts are in now because they're up in the ivory tower having to sign off invoices, do meetings, do negotiations on distributing. All of a sudden, they're nowhere near what it was that made what they do so special. So I go in there and I actually train people to get out of that ivory tower and get back to that super, super strength. Do what they do best and get other people to do what they can do. Now, it, it, how do you avoid that from happening to you? And it was that it was that part of what was happening to you earlier on. But today, as you have the opportunity to grow, especially now with the success of the book and you're going to continue to be bombarded by requests, how do you keep that in check for yourself? <laughs> Bombard is an understatement. Yeah, I, I actually had... I actually had no idea how this book would take off. Um, I wanted to write a book to help entrepreneurs get out of the way of their own fears and actually do principle, simple stuff. And I openly say that if a bricklayer from East London can be doing what I'm doing, you don't have an excuse. And so that's why I wrote the book. Um, And I'm getting a ton of requests, ton of contact, but I still maintain if it doesn't make me smile or excite me or hopefully both, I won't touch it. I get a lot of people communicate with me and I'll look at the communication. I'll be like, well, that's pretty boring. Or, well, what's the point in that? You know, or they may go, oh, I just happen to love that. Great. Thank you very much. You know, but then you'll get those nuggets in there where someone will go, hey, I've got this business and I'm a little bit trapped and I can't. And you go, oh, hang on a minute. That I like. And the beautiful thing about entrepreneurs is entrepreneurs get to do stuff that they're being told they can't do. And me, I've made a business in a concierge firm out of getting people to do and getting them into places where people have gone, oh, you can't do that. I closed a museum in Florence, the Academia, and I had a table of six at the feet of Michelangelo's David, and I had Andrea Bocelli come in and serenade them during that Mm. dinner and every single element of that i was told you can't do it even on the front of the academia there's a sign there saying no food and drink a drink inside the academia and there i am with a table for six people having dinner champagne and chandelier and candelabras so i don't recognize those people to say you can't do it because the old saying's correct it's only impossible until someone does it Is that when it's the right client, is that, seems like that's part of what you really love doing is that, that challenge of people think it can't be done and you're going to try to get it done. Yeah. I love that challenge. I love being excited and and the book's exciting me on the response I'm getting. The the concierge is exciting. I live for that challenge and I'm a great, I realized many years ago and it was around the time that I had the car, you know, I had a beautiful penthouse, didn't have kids. So, you know, I didn't have any problems, Um, but uh, I didn't have kids. I had these cars. I was traveling around the world. I had money in the account that I didn't even bother looking at, you know? So I was financially wealthy, but I suddenly realized I wasn't wealthy. And that's when it struck me, luckily enough in my 40s, the difference between being rich and the difference between being wealthy. Now, rich, as far as I'm concerned, is how much money you've got in your bank account. Wealthy is understanding and being comfortable and confident that your, your kids are safe and fed, your house is warm and dry, your repairs are done, you've got gas in the bike tank, you've got whiskey in the, on the shelf, you've got food in the pantry, you've got friends that will help you and love you for being you. That's when you're wealthy. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if someone sticks another million bucks. And I know there's people out there laughing at me, but you know, laugh away. 
I don't care if tomorrow there's another million bucks in my bank account. It's not going to change me and my circle. It's not going to get me more gas in the tank. It's not going to buy me more whiskey than I need. You need to really get a goalpost of what is going to satisfy you, what's going to make you comfortable, what's going to help you sleep at night. And I get to sleep with people. <laughs> to sleep with people. I get to sleep <laughs> with my wife. I get to party with people that I love. I have a great circle. I am one of the wealthiest people you can meet, and it's yep. nothing to do with finances. Love that. All right, so tell me what is the 5% that you're totally unique at? Um, not recognizing the no, I would say. Um, not recognizing the obstacle. And, and and I met someone that I really uh, uh, was, was passionate about meeting, um, Elon Musk. Yeah, there's a lot of people that will come along and they will see something and they, they will ask, well, what's the problem? How can we solve that? Elon comes to something and goes, well, what's the problem? Why is it a problem? Hmm. And it's, I, I'm not comparing myself to Elon Musk, but it's the way that someone says to me, oh, I would like to do something. I go, okay. And I've noticed this about people. People will tell you what they want. And then they will spend the next 30 seconds to two minutes telling you why it can't be done. You don't have to say anything. <laughs> they will go, oh, I'd love to meet you know, Elton John, but I can't because yeah, I, live in, I live here and he's over there and he's a celebrity. They will then tell themselves why they can't do what they wanted to do. And they will spend all of that energy on doing that rather than spending that energy on coming up with the one reason why they should. I'm the guy that works out why they should. And I'm the guy that goes forward and goes, okay, we want the ultimate dinner experience in Florence. All right. How can we make it so that you'll wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning going, holy cow, how the hell did I do that? Mm -hmm. And what needs to be the small steps? And immediately I'm going to take one step that gets me closer to that goal. And I will always do the one step. I will, And that one step can be as trivial as, Googling where it is, you know, finding out what it does, finding out if there's any obstacles, finding out if anyone's ever done it before. You know, it could be a little bit of research. It can be phoning someone in the area going, oh, do you know someone that has any involvement in this location? But just doing one thing that gets you a little bit closer than you were an hour ago. And then if you do that for a couple of hours, do you know what you've got? You've got momentum. And if you've got momentum and you've got passion, very little can get in your way. Great stuff. Great stuff. Um, it's such a unique approach. And, and, and you talk about in the book also about asking questions and the three whys. And and we didn't get into it as much uh, in the passion part of it. But one of the key takeaways I thought there was brilliant from a small business owner's perspective is, again, thinking of our customer or client. And what you talk about in the book, as you just touched on, sometimes what people tell you they want isn't really what they want. In addition to what you just explained about they've convinced themselves they can't get it. But if you ask those questions, you can get to the real root of what really is motivating them and what they want. And if we can do that as business owners, whether it's in our marketing efforts or our sales efforts or just in how we how and what we sell, we're going to be better able to connect and have success in our business, I believe. Yeah, I'm a great believer that the most powerful word in, in, the, uh, in the human language is why. And I will have clients contact me and they'll say, hey, I'd like to do this. Oh, that's fantastic. Why? And they'll be like, oh, uh, uh, and all of a sudden it starts a conversation. So ask why uh, and challenge for the answer. And if you ask why three times, you'll be amazed the answer you're getting by the time it's the third time you've asked. Yeah. All right, we'll start to wrap it up. The book, again, that we've been referring to is called Blue Fishing, The Art of Making Things Happen. It's a must read, in my opinion. It's an easy read. And what I mean by that is it's 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 well-written and engaging. So it's one of those where you can't put it down because it's good stuff after good stuff. Who did you write it for? <laughs> no one's ever asked me that question, but I'm going to tell you, Bobby. And I know this sounds stupid, but when I got the contract uh, and I was asked to write the book, the people that I was working with, the ghostwriters, we started writing a book and it was all kind of, oh, I did this. And then I did, it was an ego book. And 
I had a dream one night that this guy was walking through Terminal 5, JetBlue Terminal in New York. <laughs> it was that vivid. And he walked past the bookstore and he saw my book. And he paid for my book. You know, it was, it's between like 15 bucks and 24 bucks, depending where you go. He bought the book, got on the plane and read it. And I thought to myself, how does this help him? Me writing a book telling him how bloody excellent I am and the escapades that I've got up to. <laughs> and so the following day, I actually contacted Simon Schuster in New York and I went, I want to change the book that we're writing. And do you know they turned around, they went, yeah, we like the idea of that. And so then it became a, I'm not going to tell you about what I got up to. I'm going to tell you how I got up to that and how you can put it in your plumbing business, your florist, your accounting It is literally a business for anyone that's entrepreneurial, searching, wants something, needs to turn the want into a need, and is very, very primitive, easy steps. And so quite simply, I wrote it for Bobby as he was on his plane home. Love it. And I don't even know a Bobby, but (laughs) he was just the guy that came to me in my dream. Yep. We're all as small business owners that Bobby. We are that Bobby, yeah. So we've touched on obviously the services that you offer through Bluefish, but but who's your ideal client? Um, they've got to have, well, Bluefish works with uh, millionaires and billionaires. So they've got to have uh, the dreams and the aspirations and, of course, the checkbook. Um, so it's, uh, uh, it's those people that want to do something that they never thought they could do. They want to do something that's uh, uh, inspirational. All of my clients are self-made, uh, which is really nice because it's surprising that you'll see the guy that owns a valet, uh, a valet car parking company and the guy that owns banks in uh, uh, Malaysia, they actually have the same mentality. They've just got different figures in the bank account. Um, mm. And so it's very easy for there. And the, the people that I'm working with consulting through Bluefish are people that have trouble getting out of the way of themselves or are too heavily focused on the obstacles. So, um, and I'm building up different consulting uh, um, platforms for, for, for release soon on that. So by the time this goes out, they'll probably already be up on the website. Okay. Fantastic. All right. Besides your book, is there a book that you've read recently or that you can think of that you would recommend? Do you know, Joe Polish always said, aggravated oysters make pearls. And I have to be very careful what books I read. If I'm on a plane and I'm reading something by, you know, the brilliant Jay Abraham or Tim Ferriss, I literally will be on the plane and I don't want to swear, but I'll be pissed off. I will be aggravated because I want to get on with something that Jay Abraham just told me to do that I'm not doing, that I should be doing. So whenever I read, I either try to lose myself in like a Dan Brown, uh, kind of like a um, Da Vinci Code kind of whimsical, fantastical thing, or I have to read my book when I'm in my office or when I'm sat down that I can actually go, ooh, and then I'll make a note on it. So I read Jay Abraham a lot, um, or I read the, uh, the Dragon Tattoos or the big whimsical escapism books yeah love it that makes sense that makes sense all right we'll wrap it up here last two questions parting thought idea anything i didn't ask you about especially as we've been talking about the book and how it applies to small business owners which which it applies completely so that's the thing i wanted to clarify because bluefish your your business is focused on high net worth individuals but the book as we clearly articulated that's not what it's about. It's how I can take it as a small business owner and apply some of these same methods to growing and developing my business. Is there anything I didn't ask you about or a parting last thought uh, along those lines? It is written for small business owners and you never stop being a small business owner. Even when you've got more people, more staff, bigger buildings and more money, you're still a small business owner. Um, but uh, I actually wrote the book and one of the biggest things that we, we were very thrilled that we did was the title, The Art of Making Things Happen. It's not buy the book, sit on your ass, and it will come to you. It is quite clearly a guiding list of actionable items that you can make things happen. Agreed. And you make a a point in there about the 1% where we're always trying to get 1% better. I've always believed that, whether, whether I was going to a seminar or listening to somebody. And I think that approach obviously has has been a key part of your success and for mine as well. And it's such a great takeaway that we just, we start taking action one step at a time, 1% at a time, and we will get there. Yep. Where would you like us to go online to find out more about you or, and the book? 
Steve D. Sims, that's S-I-M-S, stevedsims.com. That should have all the links on there about the book. You can sign up for my little video rants on there of what I like, dislike, uh, views, opinions. So stevedsims.com. Wonderful. Steve, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks for in, uh, being with us, for letting us go a little longer than scheduled, and for sharing your knowledge and stories. I appreciate it. Thanks, pal. Thank you for having me. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest again was Steve Sims. Thanks for listening to this episode of The How of Business. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at our website at thehowofbusiness.com. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.